You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be finishing out our sermon series through the book of Ephesians today. Uh, Did everyone enjoy their Christmas celebrations this week? Yeah, good. Anybody still got some more to come? I just found out that ours this afternoon is canceled. Bummer. Uh, But I think that a lot of people are going through that as well. Um, Let me ask you this. Do your Christmas traditions and celebrations acknowledge or ignore the spiritual battle that Christmas represents? Think through the, your, all of your celebrations, all of your traditions, all of the things that you're like, man, if, if we don't do this, it's just not Christmas. Do your Christmas traditions and celebrations acknowledge or ignore the spiritual battle that Christmas represents? You see, it seems ironic to me that most of our Christmas traditions are warm, cozy even shiny celebrations when the first Christmas was anything but. Sometimes we we feel the need to make our homes look picture perfect after the latest trend we saw in a home decorating magazine at the end of the grocery store aisle. Other people busy themselves with parties and Christmas shopping and concerts and charity events and family get-togethers until the calendar is just jam-packed full with all the good stuff. And in themselves, those things aren't bad. Absolutely not. Most of them can even be good, but they, they can also be a scheme of the enemy to keep us distracted. Some of our traditions might even acknowledge Jesus as the reason for the season, I saw that phrase through my son's eyes for the first time this week. He saw a sign. He's like, I like that. Like, you've never heard that before. You're like, seven. (laughs) Um, But a lot of our Christmas traditions acknowledge that. You know, the birthday cake for Jesus, the nativity on the mantle, the reading of the Christmas story before we open presents. But the enemy can easily use even our Christian Christmas traditions to minimize the truth of Christ in our hearts. To make us think that, we're, that the keeping of our Christmas traditions is a replacement for genuine faith. It might keep us thinking that Christmas was cute rather than bloody warfare. Some of us acknowledged the spiritual battles in our, Christian, uh, in our Christmas traditions uh, this week and month Uh, because we were forced to. Celebrations, like I said, get interrupted by sickness. Grief over the death of a loved one can overshadow the season and make it really, really hard. Anxiety can flood our minds because the the to-do list is so long or because the money is tight and we can't get all the gifts that we wish that we could and we can't do all the things that we wish that we could. Uh, tension sometimes fills the dinner table because family arguments continue on year after year or new ones have presented themselves. And the question is, are we surprised or thrown off when the battle comes to the dinner table? 
Or do we allow the presence of the battle to remind us of the true reason for the sun coming to earth? And I would suggest to you that whenever we feel like life is a battle, take it outside of the Christmas tradition thing now, whenever we feel like life is a battle, we should never be surprised. That should never surprise us when life feels hard. The the passage that we're studying today tells us without a doubt that we are in a battle and we're not just in a battle against the fallenness of this world, against sickness and death. We're not just in a battle against other people. We're not just in a battle against bad things happening. Uh, We are in a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. And whether we feel the battle or not on any given day, we must acknowledge the battle because failure to do so will ensure our fall. But the Lord has come to win the battle for us and he's come to protect us in it. And so here's our big idea for today as we go through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. Stand strong together in the spiritual battle protected by the Lord. Stand strong together in the spiritual battle protected by the Lord. Like I said, we're, we're finishing this sermon series through the book of Ephesians today, and I'll remind you of our goal, our vision for this series. It, hopefully you remember it by now if you've been here with us. It's to pursue God's unimaginable vision for His church so that he might receive much glory. Pursue God's unimaginable vision for his church, so that he might receive much glory. It's up on the screen for you. And I believe that God has been getting much glory through our church as we have been pursuing this book, this vision together. I've seen so many specific ways And I've heard from so many of you in specific ways of how you are seeking to apply what we've been learning here. And that is just so encouraging. Can I just say that's so encouraging? And it's always good to ask, as you get to the end of a study like this, just take a little bit of a personal inventory. How has God challenged me and grown me through his word this fall? How has God challenged me and grown me through his word this fall? I just begin thinking about this. Maybe that answer is immediately clear for you. Maybe it would be wise to, to revisit some of your sermon notes from this past fall, or, or maybe to go back this week and just reread the entire book of Ephesians again and remind yourself of all of the things that God was teaching us through this series. Next week, we're going to have opportunity to share with God's people how God has been working on your heart at, at our New Year's Eve, uh, or our New Year's brunch. No, New Year's Eve, it's on January 2nd. Um, but we're going we're gonna to have tables all in here, and we're going we're gonna to share testimonies, and we're going to pray, and we're going to enjoy food together, and uh, it's going to be a great time, and just make sure uh, you get here next week, and you uh, also have something to share about how the Lord has been working on your heart especially through this fall. Um, And if you have nothing, if God has not been moving you at all, if you're stuck in your walk with Christ as a a part of his church, uh, then I would suggest that it's probably because you are not applying this last section of the book that we're going to study today. It's probably because this is where you need to focus. 
And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We're learning to stand strong together in the spiritual battle protected by the Lord. But some people have a hard time understanding how this passage on spiritual warfare fits into the context of the whole book. Even commentators sometimes have a hard time understanding this. Uh, Paul moves right from a household text about husbands and wives and parents and kids and, and masters and slaves right into this passage about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And so people will ask this question, like, what is Paul's train of thought here? How can we follow what he's talking about? Add to that fact that in recent years, Christians have typically individualized the teaching on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. And we've kind of assumed that, that we put on the armor alone in the privacy of our prayer closet so that we can go out and do our daily battle with Satan alone. And we tend to hide our struggles and our temptations from others in the church instead of fighting together. And it can be hard to connect the dots between this section and Paul's grand theme about the church that he's addressing in the whole book. But we're going to see today that this passage in its context is the perfect conclusion for how to pursue God's vision for his church. Because Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches started out with this whole big cosmic plan for his church. 
And then in chapter 4, he zoomed in on how that plan works out practically in local churches and how our new practices shape our interactions in a very pagan world, shape our hearts that, that have been transformed to Christ, how they shape our family structures and our work. And now, Paul is zooming back out on that big cosmic vision that God has for his church. He's acknowledging that the practical outworking of the church on earth is directly impacted by a spiritual battle that is raging in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. And it's clear that, that God expects his people to stand firm in the battle, to not get tossed to and fro like little children in the waves, but to stand firm. Four times in this passage, Paul tells believers to stand or to withstand in this evil age. And we, we can stand firm because we are in the Lord, and we must stand firm because we are in the Lord. And so we want to see today four reasons we can and must stand strong together. And the first we see is this. We have a spiritual enemy that the Lord has defeated. We have a spiritual enemy that the Lord has defeated. Paul sets our minds here in verses 10 to 11. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This passage, uh, contrary to the way that it's sometimes applied, is not meant to inspire fear or speculation or obsession about Satan and his demons. It's meant to encourage us to rely upon the Lord. I've said it this way before, our enemy is more powerful than you. For sure, he's more powerful than you, but he is not more powerful than the Lord. And so don't rely on yourself, rely on him. That's the point of this passage. Jesus has already won the victory over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Keith's acknowledged that a number of times. He prepared us well for that. Paul has laid out this theme throughout the book of, the, of Ephesians, Christ's ultimate supremacy over all things. He, he tells the, the Ephesian churches of his prayer for them in Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. It's up on the screen. He says that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand at in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying here is, is that God has worked great might in raising Jesus from the dead. And that great might, that great power has now secured Christ's place above all things in the heavenly places. 
And because we are in Christ, because we are his body, we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. We participate in the victory that he has already won. The victory is ours already. Now from an earthly perspective, back in chapter 6, he says that these rulers and authorities very much wrestle with God's people. They mess with our circumstances. They, they tempt our flesh. They exploit, exploit our weaknesses. But in the Lord, we stand strong together in the strength of His might. As long as we are holding on to our identity in Christ, we will not fall against them. This is what we are saved to do. Remember God's big cosmic vision in chapter 3, Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the, who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These very same cosmic forces that are now wrestling with us, God wants to know His church is His victory. We said back there in chapter 3 that the church is the trophy case of Christ's all-wise plan to defeat Satan and his demons. The church is where God is proving his victory by bringing together a people for himself who do not belong together or with God at all. They're a group of dead sinners who were at war with God and who were at war with one another, and they're a group of people who were enslaved by the very rulers and authorities in the heavenly places themselves, but now are set free by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our calling, church. And that is why we can and must stand firm. But this begs the question, if Christ has won the victory, then why are the rulers and authorities still wrestling with us? If Christ has won our victory, why do they wrestle with us? That's a good and necessary and complicated question. But I believe that we can find the answer right here within the titles that are used for the forces of darkness in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what are they called? They're called rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. This is language of domain and dominion. And when we understand this in the great scope of the biblical storyline, we, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where God gave domain, dominion, over the earth to who? To man and woman. That they would have dominion over all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the fish of the sea and, and that they would fill the earth and multiply. But, what happened? A fallen angel named Satan and the devil 
the ancient serpent, tempted Adam and Eve. And they gave into his temptation. They, they trusted his word more than the word of God. And they allowed the serpent to rule over them in that moment. Instead of ruling over him, they allowed him to rule over them. And in doing so, they relinquished their authority to him until the offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that is why we call Satan now the prince of the power of the air. He has been given authority over all the earth because we gave it to him in our sin. And he has enslaved mankind to sin by wielding the power of death. We read earlier in chapter 2 that he is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a reference to all mankind who are in our sin nature. And we know from 1 Peter 5.8 that he runs to and fro throughout all the earth seeking whom he may devour. Not only that, we learned last Sunday and this past Friday night that when Satan rebelled, he led a host of angels with him. We know them commonly as, as demons, but the Bible refers to them more often as the gods of the nations or with ruler language like the, the prince of Persia that we read about in Daniel that wrestles with Michael, the archangel. These are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places who, who stand behind the affairs of rulers and authorities in the earthly realm. The nations have been given over to their authority. It says at the end of the Pentateuch uh, that, that when the Tower of Babel happened, that, that God dispersed the people throughout the nations according to the number of the gods. That's these guys right here. Which sounds uh, kind of dramatic and scary, doesn't it? Boy, you're really laying that one on thick, Pastor Ben. And, and, and I want you to feel it. It, it kind of is. <laughs> Which is why it's important to understand this, this key phrase that Paul uses. Uh, their authority is over what? This present darkness. This present darkness. Their authority is for a limited time only. There's coming a day when they will have no authority at all. And that's because when Jesus Christ the Son of God came and lived as the perfect Adam. He came as the serpent crusher to take back the authority that we had relinquished. And he died the death that all the sons and daughters of Adam deserved to die. And he rose again in victorious life, securing the victory for all people who would be united to him through faith. And these rulers and authorities were put under his feet. And in Christ, we now, the church, has the th have the same authority over them as he does. And every time the gospel advances and another person is added to Christ's church through faith, every time the gospel goes to the nations and disciples are made and churches are formed, another part of the enemy's domain is taken away from him. And that is why the cosmic powers over this present darkness are still wrestling with God's people. Because they are not ready 
And it is not time for them to admit defeat because God still wants to take people out of their grasp. Michael Heiser uses this illustration. You can, you can think about the ministry of Christ that started with his first coming, a kind of like a, a giant game of risk. A giant game of risk. So you, you can picture the, the risk board there. And, and just imagine you don't have all the different colors. You just have red and black. Red and black. Red, Christ versus Satan. And at first, it, it appears hopeless. The, the black has control over the entire board. It looks like the game is in the bag for Satan. God's people have failed again and again and again. They've lost all the battles. They're in exile. Their hearts are far from God. And the red player has one piece left. Imagine that piece right there in the area of Israel. And then all of a sudden, that piece starts to win the battles. Slowly at first. And then more and more. He resists the devil's temptation. He casts out demons from people. And then there is this major turning point where the black starts majorly losing ground. Jesus dies on a cross and he rises again and the news of his victory begins to spread and take root in the hearts of God's people from every nation and, and, and you realize that this was the strategy all along. This was his plan to prove his superior wisdom in this way through this one man when no one else could do it. And so soon the red player has pieces on every continent in every nation and then he makes one final move and he wins the whole thing. He returns in power. He vanquishes his enemies. Game over. Christ is that singular peace in Israel. And the church, which is his body, is his red pieces all over the nations. And the church is the means and the proof of Christ's victory in every place where Satan and his fallen angels still currently rule. And so why are they wrestling with us? Because they are fighting to retain whatever authority they have left for whatever time they have left. And they will do anything to slow the advance of the gospel to the nations that are under their dominion. the whole goal of their schemes, as Paul calls them. Schemes. They, they can't defeat you, so they, they scheme to slow you down and to, to distract you and to, to make you stumble. The word schemes implies that the devil has like a, a, like a playbook, like a, like a football coach, right? And, and all of his cosmic powers that are under him run with that playbook, and this totally matches up to our experience, doesn't it? If you look at their work throughout history and you, and you really look at your own life as well, there, there is nothing new that they do to appeal to our flesh. It's, it's relatively easy for them. So you need to understand and you need to get to know their common plays in, their li in your life. They will slow you with enticements to sin that disrupt your communion with God. They will distract you with temptations to focus on your own self-preservation or own self-promotion. 
They will fill your mind with doubts about the trustworthiness of God and His promises. They will slow you with disagreements within the church so that you don't get focused outside of the church on spreading the gospel. As long as we can distract with stuff going on in here, they'll distract you with busyness, busy work, bazaars and craft shows and everything else within the church so that you don't get about the gospel outside of the church. They'll grip you with fear or complacency so that you don't share the gospel with others. They'll stop your growing before you can even start by convincing you that you are more likely to face defeat than victory. Show of hands. How many of you have ever experienced those schemes in your life? Any of them? If not, it probably means that you aren't being much of a threat to the enemy. And so he can go focus on someone else. But if you have seen those tactics used on you, rest assured, our Lord has defeated the enemy on your behalf already. And the victory is won. You just need to fix your eyes on his victory and walk in his freedom away from temptation and toward his righteousness. And the only reason that he delays from taking you out of the battle is because he knows that you can win the battle and he's going to use you to finish the battle. He's using you, church, to finish his battle. We demonstrate his victory over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places when we stand in defiance of their schemes to advance his gospel. Believer, I, I can't say this enough. We can't say it enough here today. Fight from a position of victory, not defeat. Fight from a position of victory, not defeat. you are in Christ, then you can and must stand firm. In the strength of his might, in his victory over the enemy, do not roll over and give in to the schemes of the devil as if Christ has not already rescued you out of his grip. Do not mope around after you've messed up saying, oh, I'm so ashamed. I, I guess I'll never overcome this sin. I, I, I guess I'll always have to walk with this dark secret in my life. That's one of the devil's schemes. Christ has already provided the blood to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you walk in the light. Don't settle for a, a vision of the Christian life where you think that you are left alone in your fight against sin where you maybe casually attend church on a Sunday morning, but then you go about fighting the devil on your own all throughout the week. That, that is one of the devil's schemes, to isolate believers and to get them discouraged and lonely and ashamed. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then Christ has already covered your guilt and your shame so that you can walk in the light with other people and expose his lies together and speak truth and love and grow in godliness. You have a spiritual enemy. He is stronger than you for sure. But he is not stronger than Christ. 
And we stand in his victory. Now, that is great in theory. What does it look like in practice? That's what the armor of God is all about. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We can and must stand strong because we have a spiritual armor that the Lord has fashioned. We have a spiritual armor that the Lord has fashioned. The armor that Paul describes here is actually the victory that Christ has already secured in our lives. It's his truth. It's his righteousness. It's his readiness that he gives us for, to share the gospel of peace. And Christ's finished work fashioned our armor in which we can and must stand firm in the evil day. It's interesting, Paul is picking up here on armor imagery that is found all throughout the book of Isaiah. Only there, in Isaiah, the armor is won by the, worn by the Messiah himself. Here are a few examples. Isaiah 59, 17. He, this is the Christ figure, the Messiah figure, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Remember the shoes, the readiness of the gospel, given by the gospel of peace. Isaiah 49.2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Understand, uh, Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior King, he wore the armor first. He won the victory in it. And then he gave the armor to us. And our responsibility, our opportunity, is to put it on as members of his body. His armor is form fit for those who are together growing into maturity in him. There. This is no different than what Paul said in Ephesians 4.24, that we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so to put on the armor of God is to live in the strength of His might that is already ours in Christ. It's to live consistently with our spiritual identity in Christ and to no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. We put on the belt of truth. Every time we allow the truth of Christ to uncover the lies of the devil. We put on the breastplate of righteousness when we trust Christ's righteousness instead of our own. And when we pursue his righteousness, his perfect standard in our relationships to others. We put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace when we prayerfully seek out opportunities to display and declare Christ to others. We take up the shield of faith that extinguishes the enemy's fiery darts when we pray and we act in faith against the accusations and temptations of the evil one. 
We take up the helmet of salvation when we allow our mind and our thoughts to be shaped by God's work of salvation past, present, and future in our lives. And we take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, when we speak the living and active truth of the Word of God and love to one another. See, our Lord, in securing our victory, has fashioned an armor that can withstand the devil in the evil day. Do you stand in his armor? Do you put it on? Do you recall it day after day, moment after moment, in the heat of the battle, in the heat of the temptation? Do you call it? Do you remind one another of it? One of our specific goals for this series was that God would expand our wonder at our identity in Christ so that His work would define our daily experience. Let me say that again. This was, this was the goal that we stated from the outset, that God would expand our wonder at our identity in Christ so that His work would define our daily experience. And we've touched on the identity in Christ many times throughout this series. And the armor of God is just another way, another wonderful way to describe our identity in Christ. In Christ, we stand in truth and righteousness and peace and readiness. In Christ, we stand in faith, saved from sin, past, present, and future, fully able to apply the Word of God appropriately. And this identity of being in Him, in in His armor, must be the way that we view ourselves if we're going to stand firm in the Lord. For you to be a follower of Christ, Christ must define your life. He's not just a little part over on the side. He must totally define your life. That's the only way that you can stand against his schemes. Are you increasingly living out of the truth of who you are in Christ? Or do you act as if Christ's victory just makes no difference to you? Has the Lord been convincing you of your identity in Him over the course of this study in Ephesians? If not, again, go back and reread the whole book and look for every time that Paul uses the words in Christ and then make a list of everything that it means to be united to Him through faith. And then, after you make that list, go back over that list and believe that it is true of you. Memorize the list. Rehearse it to yourself often. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Your identity in Christ is your spiritual armor for the battle. It is how you stand firm. But as I mentioned before, uh, the wearing of this armor is not intended to be an individual activity. Look at how Paul says we put on the armor in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. For all the saints. We don't fight the battle alone. We can and must stand strong because we have a spiritual army that God has appointed. We have a spiritual army that God has appointed. So prayer and and supplication is how we put on or take up the armor that God has for us. We don't use that word supplication anymore. 
When was the last time you used that in a conversation? Supplication. Supplicating for you. Is that the verb? I don't know. But it means to ask, to plea. The, the word originally just meant an excessive need. You ever feel that? I just have an excessive need. <laughs> and we must acknowledge how much we need the Lord in the battle that faces us. Paul says prayer is how we keep alert with all perseverance in the battle. Prayer is how we keep standing to the end. Never underestimate your need for fervent prayer. It is not just the thing that you can do. It is the thing that you can do. And not just for yourself, but for all the saints. For all the saints. Prayer is not just a you and God thing. It is an us and God thing. And that is why we insist, we insist on praying together here at Oak Hill. We together are God's army. We stand strong together. And all of the command words, the imperative verbs that are used in this section are plural. They are written to the whole church together. We wear the armor and we stand in the armor together. And this is especially evident when we consider one particular piece of the armor, uh, the shield of faith. So there are two types of shields that the Roman soldiers would have used. One was a small round shield for hand-to-hand combat, and one was an oblong shield uh, used for marching in battalion in formation. And so guess which one Paul uses here? The one that you use for together. The big one. The big long one. And so here's, here's a video of what that would have looked like. So you got these flaming dart archers up on the hill, and you got the battalion marching together down there. You can't see it, but we're going to zoom in here real quick. And the darts are coming, but look what's happening. If you can see it, they have their shields above their head and all around their side. They've basically created a shell around them so that the darts are just pinging off, and, and, and they're marching together. Now, if only, they only had one shield, one guy. Guess what? Those archers are coming from all sides. He's going to get nailed. But together, together they stand strong, and they keep marching. And that is what is happening when we make supplication for all the saints. We, we protect one another's blind spots through faithful praying. This is why we insist on praying together at Oak Hill. If we don't make prayer for others in our church a high priority in our life, praying for the other members of your gospel community throughout the week, praying with them when they have a need, stop, drop, and pray. Remember, we've talked about that. I want that to be a value. I want that to be seen all over our church during fellowship. Stop, drop, and pray. Somebody's sharing a need with you. you. You don't just say, I'll pray for you later about it. You stop, drop, and pray right then. If you refuse to participate in our prayer times after the sermons, it's one of the ways that we've been trying to promote fervent prayer together, right? If you refuse to do that, if you, if you sit back and you don't offer prayers with your gospel community as you start out with scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer, and you're just like, no, I don't do it. I don't pray with other people. I don't do it. 
I get that if you're young in the faith, like that's a thing. I totally get that. If you've been a believer now for a little while, your brothers and sisters need you. If you all together neglect our lift up prayer nights, it's like, ah, they never make it on the schedule. You're expecting a guilt trip, right? You're expecting like, oh, you don't come to prayer meeting, you're not saved. No. You're just undercutting your growth in the Lord. You're just undercutting your spiritual ability to stand firm. And not just for yourself, you're undercutting it for all of us. Because we are members together in a body. We are building blocks together in a temple. We need you. We need you to be praying. We need you to be fervent in prayer. And if you feel guilty, that's just the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you. Because you're giving the enemy a foothold, not just in your own life, but in the life of our whole church, if you refuse to pray. And we must pray for each other, and not only for each other, but are those on the front lines of mission. Look at verse 19. It says, And pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So these churches who were receiving this letter in and around the city of Ephesus were embassies of the gospel. But their ambassador had gone out to claim new territories for Christ. And he needed their fervent prayer to boldly proclaim the good news of Christ's victory in hostile territory. Even as he found himself in house arrest under Rome. God's vision for his church includes every local church, not just ours. And it includes the advancement of the mission through making disciples and the planting of more churches. And that's why we pray for churches and pastors in other places. Because the victory of Christ is demonstrated when the gospel goes everywhere. I love how Dwight led us this morning in understanding what goes into planting a church because it's hard work. And, and there's some people sticking their necks out and having an uncomfortable church experience for a little while and really working hard because they're going to be the only ones who are working as new believers come in or, or even unbelievers and they don't understand and they need to be discipled and built up. And that's why we're doing it so that we can claim new territory and they need to be prayed for. That's why we give to church plants in Spain. Like we are right now. Today's the last day for that, by the way. That's why we pray for other churches here in Solanco. Because the, the victory of Christ must be made known through every local church, through every embassy of his kingdom. Now here's the awesome part about this. When we participate in God's mission for his church, we don't just pray for them, we receive encouragement from them. Look at verse 21. He says, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. 
So Tychicus is the carrier of this letter, and he's, he's meant not only to carry the letter, to, but to be a walking prayer letter himself on behalf of the Apostle Paul about his ministry and his condition and how the church in Rome is doing. He's supposed to encourage them with the good news of how, about how the gospel is going forward. And it's just another reminder that they were part of a bigger army that the Lord had appointed. If the work of the ministry ever seemed hard or futile to them, if, they ever just, if it ever just felt small and like, is this worth it? And They could hear and they could remember how reports of the gospel was reports about how the gospel was gaining traction over all the world, even in the very seat of the empire that was opposing God's people. And that's one of the reasons why we send out the prayer letters of our global prayer partners. Uh, we, this week we sent out two. We, we sent out one from Spain and then another one from a GCC church in uh, India. And we want you to be encouraged about the way that the gospel is taking root around the world. I read that one in, from India this week, and I'm like, our church has to hear this. They have to be encouraged by this. This is so amazing. So go back to your Oak Hill update this past Friday and read it if you didn't get to. Because it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. We have a spiritual army that the Lord has appointed. We are part of that army one of our goals for this series was that God would expand our vision of church ministry so that we would each maximize our role in his body. And we are part of the body of Christ, the army of God that is moving the gospel of Christ's victory throughout the world. The part that you play here as an usher or a greeter or a gospel community member who's speaking the truth and love to someone else, the part that you play there is, a, is fostering the health of this local church so that we can be part of something so much bigger than us. As we play our part here, we pray, we give, and then we can go, we can send. And, and what is happening then is we are standing strong against the enemy and his schemes. We can and we must stand strong together because we have a spiritual enemy that the Lord has defeated. We have a spiritual armor that the Lord has fashioned. We have a spiritual army that the Lord has appointed. Finally this, we have a spiritual blessing that the Lord has secured. We have a spiritual blessing that the Lord has secured. Paul closes out his letter with these words, uh, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. This is much the same way that he started out his letter uh, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember that? Like all the way back at the beginning of the series? Paul is reminding them that in the midst of this battle that rages on against them in the heavenly places, they have a spiritual blessing that is already secure in the heavenly places. They have peace with God, which brings peace between Jew and Gentile. Remember from chapter 2, verse 14, He Himself is our peace. They have love from God. Ephesians 1.5, In love He predestined them for adoption as sons, that through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. 
They have faith in God's work through Jesus Christ. He thanked God for their faith in chapter 1, verse 15. And that faith is the means through which God extends to them His lavish grace. In chapter 2, we read that He saved us so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And spiritual, the spiritual blessings of His grace are meant to sustain the believer in the present battle so that we can stand firm. His grace is our nourishment. It's the, the food that our souls need to fight another day. Believer, feast on His grace. Drink deep of His blessings. It is the only way that you can live out God's unimaginable vision for His church. These blessings are for those who love our Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible. They are for those who do not shrink back in the day of trouble but stand firm, who persevere to the end with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. Is that you? Do you love your Jesus with a love incorruptible? That's what we need to be growing. A love incorruptible for our Savior. Have you so experienced the outpouring of Christ's grace that you can't help but love Him? Our last specific prayer for this series was that God would expand our passion for his gospel of grace so that we would carry it to the lost. Do you love Jesus so much that you can't help but tell others about his gospel of grace? Our next study in the book of Mark that starts on, on January 9th is going to be all about that idea. Now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But you won't do that unless you love him. Unless you grow a passion for his gospel of grace in your heart. And that passion grows by understanding all of the spiritual blessings that have been secured for us through Christ's grace. We have a spiritual blessing that the Lord has secured in the heavenly places. And that's essential because we are in a spiritual battle in the heavenly places. Places. And so as your holiday gatherings continue this week, as you continue your traditions and your celebrations, as you reflect on this past year and you get ready for the next, as you spend time with your family and then get back to work, as you set your goals and your resolutions for the new year, acknowledge the battle. Don't ignore it. Don't grow complacent or indifferent to it. Consider how you will stand strong together in the spiritual battle protected by the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.